Welcome to We Question and Learn. This is Tom Pies. We're celebrating our 18th year on the air here at WQLN. Our programs are uh, rebroadcast, so to speak, as podcasts on WQLN.org forward slash We Question. We are also on NPR One. Today, a very special guest. Today, Teresa Mertland, the Executive Director of Africa 6000 International, is my guest. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Tom. It is a pleasure to be here. I know we've been trying to connect for a while, so it's great to finally do it. <laughs> this program uh, that you're managing has um, a, a very large scope, but let's talk first geographically. Obviously, sure. the title says where you work. Am I right? Um, yes, Africa. That's good. Yeah, that's good, yeah. <laughs> Africa 6000, yes, is a nonprofit, a 501c3 um, we are in our actually approaching our 15th anniversary. We started in May of 2007, and Joe Preshak, you know him from Erie. I think everyone knows Joe, um, yes. awesome man. He decided he had been traveling back and forth to Africa um, for several years with friends. And one thing people may not know about him is while he's extremely entrepreneurial and very good at business, he also has a big, compassionate heart. So I just happened to be returning from a three-month stay in Mozambique. I had been there working um, just with orphans, and we had gone down along the Zambezi River for a month and took food um, to some of the um, impoverished people. And I had just gotten back, and Joe, in the meantime, had been talking with friends about starting um, a nonprofit that would work specifically in Africa's water sector. And so it just it was just ironic and one of those things, it's just fate, you know, it's something you're supposed to step into. I came back, um, we met, and decided to start Africa 6000. And so we got it off the ground, uh, again, coming up on 15 years ago. Well, let me ask you first. Um, sure. Sequentially, you went to Africa for three months to do a project. Am I right? Did I hear you? Yes, yeah. That is correct. And what was that and what did that involve? Well, it was it was more a missions related project. Okay. I um, stayed at uh, an orphanage and we just we worked with the orphans, kind of learned about third world countries and um, took a lot of time taking water and food into some very remote areas and it was um, quite eye opening. Yeah. And here you are in Erie coming back to Erie with that good project under your belt. You ran yeah. into Joe, and then how did he come up with the water project? Did you two so, brainstorm this? Oh, no. He actually brainstormed it with – he had been going back and forth um, to Africa with friends. Um, yes. One of the gentlemen is the president of World Serve International, who we're oh, partners okay. with. Yeah. And then another gentleman, um, Doug Pitt – who is one of our advisors and um, actually had been traveling with Joe as well. And they were talking about doing something in Africa's water sector. It was actually Joe's idea. And so um, they just mentioned my name because we all knew each other yeah, <laughs> along yeah. the way, and they knew I had been traveling in Africa. And so it, it started from there. It was just, it was really amazing. People always try to discover their mission, and you just walked right into it. Exactly. It's, it's fascinating. <laughs> Now, on a more serious note, and this is yes. very serious, especially uh, as you think about it, I think there are an outrageous, uh, too many children dying each year uh, yeah. because of a lack of clean water. That is absolutely correct. In fact, that was the reason why 
Joe wanted to start the nonprofit in the first place. As he had been traveling to Africa, he spent time in the orphanages as well. Um, mm. He saw, saw a lot of children suffering. At that time, when we started Africa 6,000, 6,000 children were dying daily from waterborne disease, and that's basically just from not having clean water to drink and bathe in. Um, in the last 15 mm. years, the great news is the work that we've done, that number is now down to about 2,000 children daily, but, oh, golly, that's way too much still. So mm. we're just going to keep drilling until we can't drill anymore. <laughs> oh, I, you know, when you think about the seriousness of COVID right now, and it is very serious, yes. it's, in, it's an important topic, this this is immense. I didn't uh, know this many children pass away in a certain geographic region as well. What part of Africa do you work in? Um, we basically work in East Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, I mean, Africa is made up of more than 50 countries, so you could drill and drill in many countries for years and years and still never um, reach all the populations that need reached. But we drill in Tanzania, Kenya, Ethiopia, and we did a little bit when we started in northern Mozambique. Hmm. Um, waterborne disease is really outside of probably the average American's um, vision or imagination, I guess I should say. It's, it's extremely destitute. Um, I have witnessed just in the travels there prior and then with Africa 6000, um, just villages where there are moms and pops and grandmas who you know, will drink the urine of cows just to give whatever water supply they mm. have to the children. Mm -hmm. They walk, you know, 15, 20 kilometers just to get whatever water they can carry back. And usually that water is contaminated uh, most often. Mm -hmm. So our so what we do is go in, we go into a village, we assess it, make sure it's a desperate need village. We go in, drill a water well, give them clean water. And literally it means life for a lot of people. And it means a lot to us to do that. This is a huge logistics project. Um, when you say go in and drill, yes. do you have a construction? Co you're, you're, you're laughing, and I know why you're laughing, because I can't even imagine the difficulty oh. involved. Do oh, you, my goodness. Do you bring in construction crews? Obviously, you need equipment. How does this all work logistically? Oh, that is just a long answer. Yeah, there you go. No. Yeah, yeah. I guess until you've been to Africa, you can't imagine how difficult it is to get into just one village. I mean, it can take you days. There were there was one trip in particular I remember where we had to take a helicopter, and we really? got lost with the helicopter. And when we would drop down, and then everywhere you go, whether you're in a big truck or in the helicopter, you um, pick up someone from the previous village or the, the nearest village who might know someone and who could help you interpret because there's so many languages or oh at least, um, yeah, in Africa. So you stop and you get someone, and then sometimes you can have, you know, six, seven, eight interpreters, and you have to actually find your way in. And a lot of those times you can imagine trying to get a big drilling rig yeah. in, let alone just your trucks to go in and survey ahead of time. So uh, many, many times we have to have villagers come out and actually cut the road in for the trucks um, to get in and actually drill there because it's when they do get rain there, the ground is so, so hard. It just runs off. People wonder why they don't have wow. you know an adequate water supply. Um, it's because it, it, it becomes like a river. It floods it out and runs off. So our trucks, that, that usually catches our trucks off guard all the time, obviously, because you can't um, foresee that coming. So we have just ruts in the roads and trucks stuck all the time and trying to get into villages. So 
Um, it is it is quite um, quite a job, but we actually have our drilling crews actually live in Africa. Um, mm. We hire men and women who actually live there, work there, know the land, know the people. Because if you can imagine working in Africa, it's a little bit difficult. Mm-hmm. You're working with third world countries. You have to get to know government officials. You have to have good re- working relationships. So it's a lot of work. Um, very rewarding, but. Um, very, very hard to get it done. <laughs> We're talking about Teresa Merdland, Executive Director of Africa 6000 International. So the logistics are the trucks are sort of there where you can find them. You're road building at the same time. You're overcoming yes. immense environmental difficulties. And then when you finally get, let's say, to a village, you drill for water. Am I am I close? Yes, correct. Okay. Yes. Yeah, we actually have groundwater experts that will go out ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Um, they will take a look at the land, try to find maybe at least three sites where they believe they will find the best um, water source or try to find the aquifer, Mm -hmm. and then we'll drill. Um, Because we have that mechanism now, it does um, stop the, I guess, the reoccurrence of so many dry wells um but it is it's, it's not uncommon to hit a dry well but mm. we we don't like doing that because when you're going into a village where people have never had clean water before and you're they see the, the rig coming and you're drilling they're expecting clean water and it is such a disappointment when you can't give that to them but um so we have we've done everything we can over the years just to evolve into a better um have a better understanding of the ground there. There's a lot of volcanic activity that happened there years ago. So we, even when we go in and try to get a reading on the ground, we can get a lot of false positives. Um, but we, once we are able to, to find water, we go down. We can go up to 200 meters. We put in large mm. boreholes. Um, we now do, once we get the borehole in, we do solar pumping systems so villagers can drill and then have water around the clock so they're not standing in long lines or out at night when it's dangerous. Um, we actually put in multi-distribution systems now, so we do large community projects. Mm-hmm. If there are villages that are close to each other, um, we'll do piping so that we can take, if we have one good aquifer, say we have a 6,000 liter per hour um, give from the well, we can actually run piping and do a couple different distribution points so that other villages can enjoy that that property as well. I was going to say, you you can't ship in thousands of gallons of, say, diesel fuel to power a pump. So you've solved the problem using solar technology. That's fascinating. Uh, So you have a company that helps you do that, or is that also local? Well, it can't be local. You're you're looking for people with a good degree of technical knowledge to build a solar system. How does that all work? How does that work? um, we actually hire and train folks in Africa oh, to yeah. do the work so that and, – and also also when we go into a village, we also work with um, – they usually have like a committee or an oversight group, and we empower them to take over the well to um, – make sure that, you know, we, we build fences around it. We make sure that it's only used at certain times or that it's protected and that animals can't get in and use it or tear it down. So um, mm-hmm. we really work well with the people there. It's, and, that, and that's really important as well. And, and, and really when a village gets a clean water well project, they, it, they take it on as their own. It's such a gift. <laughs> it's amazing then. And then you're on to the next. How many wells have you done so far? Um, 
So to date, we are currently at the at the start of January. We we started 14 new village projects. So that will bring us up to probably about 135 complete villages, and then we've done um, dozens of parts of water wells over the years. So we will do 14 at the start of the year. Once we complete those, our hope for the rest of the years to do another 25 or 30 villages. We're um, we're just re- ready to go. <laughs> we bring in funding and we do the villages, and that's how it works. Now, where does most of this funding come from? Does some of it come from Africa itself and the contacts you've made there? Obviously, you're getting a good deal of help from right here yeah. in the United States. How does this all come together? Um, it's 100% fundraising. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, the, okay. the only... Yeah, the only income that came um, when we first started our our water, um, the drilling company was located and and is located. We have three drilling companies, one in Kenya, one in Ethiopia, and one in Tanzania. Mm -hmm. And we, at at first, they were for profit. We worked with the government so that way we could, the government could help fund as well. Mm. But over the years, um, issues there it just became such a problem that we brought those in-house and so they're fully nonprofit. So all of, and before, for example, we could help a government like provide water to a hospital, et cetera. And then we could use some of that funding for villages. Now we're just 100% donation. Um, So Mm -hmm. that all comes from uh, just wonderful donors that we have corporations, businesses, churches, families, you name it. It's, it's, it's been such a great 15 years, and it's amazing because we don't really have to go out and ask. Um, yeah. When people have a heart for something like this, they have a heart for it. So once they hear about it, it's just it's just a really – it's been really easy. We've really been blessed. So money can come from anywhere in the world, basically, where someone yes. has an interest in helping these people in Africa. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we, we – work with donors from all over. Mm -hmm. And I can't say enough about Erie. Um, Obviously, we are headquartered in Erie. And the the community here is amazing. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have businesses, corporations, churches that have been with us since the very beginning. And we do like two fundraising events here in Erie. We have a fall event that's just basically a dinner. Mm -hmm. And then we have um, the golf event in in summer, which has been growing. And with the help of of our local committee there, we have turned that into a PGA um, uh, tournament. And that has been a blast. We have like people like uh, our committee is Mark Salvi, I think from Hub, Mm -hmm. Greg Rubino, Passport, Michael O'Connor helps us. He's one of the PGA players. He has the Ridge Golf Club, Mm -hmm. Uh, Jim Murkowski from ISM, and then, of course, Dennis Preshak from from Plaztec. They have been on that committee, and, boy, they go strong, and it's just been growing, and it's been a really exciting event, and people are happy to be part of it. And I think that's been the big heart of Joe when it comes to any kind of local fundraising or event fundraising. We want to make sure that the people that are are partnering with us we are also giving back to so we make those things fun and it's basically a you know enjoy just enjoyable so that they can have a good time and know also because they know us that the dollars that they're giving are going to an excellent cause Teresa merlin do you have a website for your organization yes it is uh africa the number 6000 intl dot o-r-g Fascinating. Okay, let me boot that up. Now, um, that the cost of all this, you mentioned it all comes from charity now. Governments helped Mm -hmm. you prior. 
what's it cost to drill? And not a, a lot. That was that, that was, was basically just, okay. yeah. yeah. Okay. What is what does it cost to drill a well like this? Say in a village. Um, the, so the water well projects that we're doing now, they, it's it varies. Um, mm-hmm. When we first started, we were only doing hand pumps. We could do those for oh, about wow. fifteen thousand oh, wow. dollars. Yeah. What we what we um, discovered over the course of time, and obviously it has definitely evolved as we've gone because we've looked for the better solutions. Um, we want to make sure that water wells are deep and that they last a lifetime. Mm-hmm. We don't want to leave a village and two years later they don't have clean water again. Mm-hmm. What we discovered and what many people do, and it just doesn't work unless it's a very shallow well, is that hand pumps are not the best idea mm-hmm. because they're very hard to operate and they there are components in them that eventually wear out. So if you don't have Again, Africa, you would have to just understand the remoteness of it and the lack of communication and and technological stuff in many areas, especially Ethiopia. Um, You can't just get a hold of someone to come in and fix it. So it could sit there for years until someone is able to come back around and – you know, find out that you don't have water. Um, we then we did the windmill scene, um, but you don't mm. always get wind. Right. <laughs> so right. It, it's great right. when it works, right. um, yeah. but then the solar pumping system is the way to go. And then we started doing that, and um, then discovered that having multi, I guess. Uh, multi-distribution points helps a lot so people don't have to walk still a couple kilometers to get it. Mm-hmm. And then also uh, the villages that have animals, they need water troughs. And you can't have the animal troughs and the people troughs together. That's one of the things that also um, oh, causes yeah. waterborne and it leads to bacteria. So we've been doing um, separate animal troughs. In fact, one of the villages that we drilled in close to Kilimanjaro, um, they had a problem where the elephants would smell the water and oh, from the new yeah. pump, and they oh, would yeah. come and try to break the fence down and get into the well. So we built a well f- or uh, a distribution point for them about five miles away oh. so the elephants would have their own oh. water, and that worked out perfectly. So we do all kinds of things like that and then obviously do uh, bring villages together. So a water well can cost anywhere from – Thirty-five thousand to probably forty-five, fifty thousand dollars, depending on where it's at, what we're doing, the components of it, how much solar is needed, etc. What's fascinating to me is that you've developed uh, solar-powered pumps. Uh, was that technology yes. that you developed as you went along, or did someone who's an engineer or a manufacturing company come along and help you? Um, it was just basically working with other groups that drill water wells and oh, okay. mm-hmm. and finding out what's working and then working with obviously we get our get our pumps they when you're in Africa we have to pre-order obviously to have stuff brought in as you know it's it, it's mm-hmm. kind of difficult to get things shipped so we have you know we have to bring in 10 or 20 or 30 solar pumping systems and all of the piping and and the pumps, et cetera, at one time. So we work with different vendors. Well, that's fascinating. Um, mm-hmm. The concept, again, is a lot of this money for all these projects in Africa actually has come mm-hmm. from Northwest Pennsylvania. Am I right? Yes. Wow. Oh, much of it. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Uh, and like I said, are you getting any help from the folks? Uh, well, I didn't mean to interrupt you. The, oh, the trouble with phones, you can't see people talking. <laughs> but but, but uh, the folks uh, internationally, has anyone caught wind of this, so to speak, and uh, decided to help you out, say from another country, or even someone in Africa who may find these areas an opportunity for economic development? 
Um, I mean, Africa, especially like in Tanzania, mm-hmm. um, where it's more updated, they have obviously come along. They're so thankful. We we work with good people there. We have good teams there. So they're thankful. As far as financing goes, I yes, we get funding from all over the world. I think more okay. so from the United States of America. <laughs> okay. So that this is good. This is outreach for us. Um, yes. As you move forward, um, you've had a couple of good years, I believe. You're moving forward. Is it is it a stress now to get funding for um, new drilling projects right now? Um, not at all. It, okay. You know, this is it's amazing. But the last two years, when you would think it would have been, and maybe last two and a half years, when you think it would have been the toughest, it's mm-hmm. been the best years that we've had. Um, I just attribute that to uh, the good. uh, People have good hearts. And I think, especially here in America, when you're, we don't have to go through a lot all the time. And when you have something happen where you find yourself faced with, you know, real critical issues, it kind of brings you home, so to speak. And I think that people's hearts have just been stirred to give and have even more compassion than they normally do just because of what we've all been facing and water, especially Um, there is no more tangible gift, a better tangible gift you could give than water. They say that, you know, a person can survive three days without it. And that's about it. Maybe occasionally they've had somebody that survived for a week. Um, But there is, there's nothing like the gift of water. And I just don't, I don't, I I mean, without it, you can't live. Exactly. (laughs) Oh yeah. 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 And I know if you've ever even been remotely thirsty, oh, yeah. it is not pleasant. But to have that every single day of your life and every night that you go to bed and actually die from that is just a, a horrific situation. I, and it, you know, to be able to help a third world country in those issues where we've never even experienced that kind of, of suffering to that extent, or at least not all of us, um, yeah. I think has made it really simple. Plus, um, we, again, we, we are surrounded in this Erie community with amazing people. And I think Joe Preshak, just just his being involved with it um, speaks volumes to people. Like I said, I don't know that people know how what a compassionate heart he has, and he's such um, such a great uh, teacher and leader. And like through this season, I know my father always taught me this too, and I think this has kind of been our motto: when people are kind of around you not working as hard anymore taking an extended break just work harder (laughs) and i think that's been our yeah that's just been our our way of thinking the whole way through this we've come to work every day joe has come to work every day we didn't stop we didn't look to the left or the right we just kept going because we know there are people in africa that desperately need water and it's just it's been an amazing and real blessing the last couple of years i'm just even going into 2022 oh yeah i'm just startled that two thousand children a day pass away because yeah. they can't get a glass of water. That just astounds yeah. me. So it's a well, yes. it's a project well worth it. Uh, any plans for the future? Let's say, oh, you're working diligently, and I'm sure you have a laundry list of people and places and things to do in Africa. Probably it's a never-ending story for you. I'm sure it's going to take Correct. years. But um, is there any um, thoughts about expanding the program elsewhere? Or let's say farther into Africa. 
Oh, sure. I mean, we will will gladly do that if we can. It's just that, and we have been slowly moving from country to country. I mean, we just ex- extended into Ethiopia permanently this past year, actually okay. in the middle of what they say is a pandemic. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we would gladly do that. It's just there's so much um, there's so much need. Like I said, you could probably drill for a lifetime and never reach all the people that need reached. So, have other and it's organ- really actually oh. been a. Oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. I said, it's actually really been um, a joy this year. Like I said, we went into Ethiopia. We just did our first five projects there. They are among the first projects in Ethiopia that have ever had solar pumping systems. And Ethiopia is still very remote in terms of um, technological advances. So it was so difficult even to have communication, let alone um, get information back on the wells, et cetera. And we were able to complete five projects there. And actually, oh, about five years ago, we did um, five water well projects in the refugee camps there along the Somali border. Oh, and those, that's right. Yes. Oh, amazing. Yeah, those, yeah, those were amazing projects, large projects, and mm. are still serving, you know, probably at least a million people. Well, briefly, the government yes. support you. They like this, right? The local governments. I'm sure the local folks love it, the jurisdictions, et cetera. Do the national yeah. governments there appreciate this? Um, you know, it depends on where you're working, what country, et cetera. I mean, if you think about it, Africa is still a third world country. Um, there's still yeah. – uh, it, 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 it's still very tribal in some areas. Um, some governments, again, like the remote countries that we're starting to work in, it's more difficult there and, and really uh, – I mean, there are countries like Tanzania, we have no issues and everything is smooth sailing. And then there are other countries we go into where it's it's difficult. They want to tax you. They stop you. They mm. they cause issues. Um, it's it's sort of frustrating when you're giving people free water and it's it's not about the people. But um, I think for the most part, we, we are, have been really good at working with the governments and um, really developing and building friendships and helping them understand that we're there helping people. So, but you're, you're going to run into that when you're in a third world country. You're saving people's lives. You're, uh, yes. you're, you've created a logistics system when you really think about it. That's amazing to get something out in the middle of nowhere with no roads, no yes. practical way of being there to start drilling. Not only that, but you have reservoirs, you have tanks, you have distribution systems, it's just yes. utterly amazing. It, it's amazing to me that what you've accomplished to date. Yeah. You know, I'm really, really thankful for it. And I know Joe is extremely thankful for it. And I have to say, there's Africa is a beautiful continent. And the people there, when you go into these villages, it's just a really beautiful experience. We've had, I mean, obviously there are challenges. There are weather challenges. There's you know, as we said, travel challenges, but there has been so much fun and so much joy and so much learned um, through getting to know these people as well. So it's just been a real blessing. It's got to be an amazing project with Ebola and SARS and now water and uh, the misfortune of children passing away is is just beyond belief. Uh, Congratulations on your project. And uh, if folks wanted to learn more, uh, you gave Mm -hmm. the website, which was Africa. 6000 INTL, which stands for international.org. Uh, if Correct. someone wanted to just chat with you, um, 
help sure. you, participate with you, maybe offer some ideas. What's the best way that they can get a hold of you? Oh, you can actually call the office. It's 814-878-4419. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can email as well. And that's you could just send it to me, Teresa M. at Africa6000intl.org. This is a fascinating and very important project. Thank you very much, Teresa Merlin, for coming uh, on air and and (laughs) chatting about this. I hope people visit the website. Uh, There's a lot of information there. I think, uh, I hope they appreciate the amount of work it takes to do this and the fact that you're saving lives is. It speaks for itself. Teresa Mertlin, Executive Director of Africa 6000 International, thank you for being a guest today. Absolutely, Tom. Thank you for the opportunity. It was so much fun. Welcome to WQLN's Early Learner Spotlight. There will be many situations in school, at home, and out and about when your child might have to calm themselves down. For example, when your child is feeling excited, nervous, angry, or frightened. This is called self-regulation. You can help your child learn to self-regulate by helping them practice calming breathing. An example of calming breathing is to breathe in for four seconds, hold for four seconds, and then breathe out for four seconds. You can modify this using the number of seconds that works best for your child. You can even model calming breathing yourself when you are excited, nervous, angry, or frightened. Being able to self-regulate with calming breaths will help your child feel more comfortable wherever they go. Find more ideas from your learning neighborhood at wqln.org slash learning. Protect your legacy. Take a moment to create an estate plan, both to protect your assets and to protect the people you love. WQLN has partnered with Free Will to help you complete this important task quickly and easily. Using Free Will's online tool, you can write a legal will in 20 minutes or less. Celebrate all that you love by safeguarding the future. Go to freewill.com WQLN to get started. That's freewill.com WQLN. Your public broadcasting station is excited to offer WQLN Passport, a benefit for WQLN members that provides access to an on-demand streaming library of public television programming featuring both PBS programs and WQLN original productions so that fans of WQLN-TV can watch even more of their favorite shows. From Nova, Masterpiece, Great Performances, Ken Burns, and more. Information is at wqln.org passport. When music is exceptional, it transcends the moment in which it was created and becomes timeless, sounding fresh and creative many years into the future. This then becomes five-star music. For five-star jazz from the 50s and 60s through current works that are destined to become classics, you needn't look any further than the third set, Monday through Thursday at 11 p.m. on WQLN Radio in Erie. I'm Bill DeVille. Join me each week for Time Machine from The Current. Together, we'll travel back to a specific year with a carefully curated list of some of the best songs and a few deeper cuts as we look at what happened in music, pop culture, and the world. It's a sonic journey through music history. Time Machine from The Current. Saturday afternoon at 2 on WQLN NPR.
Welcome to Week Question and Learn. We're celebrating our 18th year here on the air at WQLN NPR. We're on NPR One, of course, WQLN on the air, and about nine other podcast venues. So we try and line up some special guests of local interest, but of uh, more regional interest. And today, I have the honor of being able to talk with James W. Grunke, the president and CEO of the Erie Regional Chamber and Growth Partnership. And uh, wow, uh, you started there, I believe, around uh, the middle of September in 2018. Am I close? That That is close. But but first, let me say, one, what a great uh, thrill it is for me to be speaking with you. And congratulations on eight, 18, 18 years. Yeah, yeah. That's an awesome accomplishment. But yes, you're right. I, I got here in uh, September of 2018, and it's really been who would have seen what the last three and a half years would turn out to be? I know. It's been a challenge all the way around. Um, when you first um, got here in 2018, you came from, um, I believe, Montana. You were involved in a very important economic partnership out there. Am I right? That's, that's correct. So I worked in uh, Missoula, Montana for about six years Mm. Uh, leading their economic development efforts. I originally came there as a as a consultant to help them put a plan together, and then they just never let me leave. Um, and so <laughs> it was a really good experience, and it was a it was a community similar to um, Erie in the fact that they had had really significant job loss in around 2010 2011, um, and um, they really needed to create a more robust economic development strategy. And that's also what kind of attracted me. To, to Erie um, was just the appetite for doing something different. Um, I'm not familiar with that area, but Montana, I believe, is a very beautiful place. And I think, if I'm reading this right, you folks got together and attracted um, 100 new startup companies in that region? We did. So we had a, we had a modest goal of 25 new startups over um, five years. And um, we were really successful in helping many companies get started and, and turn out to be closer to 100, which is a really significant number in I, a short, in a five-year window. I like people to know what you've done because I think sometimes folks forget uh, that um, you were hired because of your outstanding resume and you were in Atlanta. You were with the National Community Development Services organization there. Tell us a little bit about that, if you would. So, um, so I worked for a company that was headquartered in Atlanta, but I always remained in, in the West. Mm -hmm. And what National Community Development Services do, does is they really help communities craft an economic development strategy and then more importantly, raise the money to implement it. It's easy to come up with, hey, we should do this or do that, but if you don't have the resources to do it, you can't accomplish it. And so that's really what I did starting in 2007. I worked in communities all over um, the country to help craft an economic development strategy and then raise the money. And so I started in, let's see, I was in Great Falls, Montana. I was in Cody, Wyoming. I was in uh, Modesto, California. I was in Winnipeg, Manitoba, uh, Tacoma, Washington, and then finally in um, uh, Missoula. And over that time period um, in those communities, we raised, oh, I can't remember exactly now, but it seems like about $25 million collectively in all those communities to do economic development. And I became convinced with that effort 
that that was the only model for success. Um, and I've had the ability to, to do that, not only to help a community as an outsider, but I've had the ability to implement it twice now in two different communities, um, actually three. I, we did it first in Boise in 2003. Um, so I have a long history of this model of how you do economic development successfully. If I put the Sorry pin, for the long answer. no, no, I prefer the long answer because I think people need to understand uh, where your credibility and your expertise comes in, and uh, how you will or do apply it to Northwest Pennsylvania. So um, you have this big footprint all over the middle of the country, a little, little bit more west than east. Uh, so Erie, what what was your, what were your thoughts when you first got here? If I could ask, well. Uh... It's it's funny. I, I was asked by uh, you know people when I how did I end up in Erie and I and I came here um, when I was going through the interview process and I really hadn't done a job interview probably since I got out of college right so I didn't really know how to do it I just know how to have a conversation and talk about things and I think that's the the right approach but I found when I came to Erie um, that I there was such an appetite. Uh, for wanting to do more um, and change the, the direction of the community that I, I quickly became apparent to me that it was work I wanted to do with people I wanted to work with in a place that I wanted to be. Um, and let me just kind of phrase that, right? There are lots of places in the United States that are having the same challenges. Um, and the sense of place does matter, right? And while Erie was the first time um, I have ever lived any place where I can't see a mountain. All the other kind of natural attributes, the wooded nature, the, the, the um, history of the community, um, the waterfront, right? Those were all factors that did it. But mainly it was, do I get to work with people that I want to work with trying to do something meaningful? And, and people used to say, and I still think it's the truth, that, hey, you're coming to Erie at the right time. And my answer always was, I know that. That's that's why I came. I saw all that as well. It's an amazing place. We're both in deep agreement on that point. And of course, you, you brought uh, a lot of value to the community. Although in the last couple of years, you sort of have been handcuffed, so to speak, by this COVID-19 invasion. In the last couple of years, your thoughts, how have you managed this? What are your perspectives on this relative to the community and relative to economic development? Well, it's, it's interesting. We were just reflecting on it uh, just this week. You, you know, we're nearing two years since the pandemic, really since the shutdown and, and how naive we were when it first shut down on, on St. Patrick's Day in 2020 that we thought the shutdown would be two weeks. Mm -hmm. um, and here we are two years later doing that. But I, you know, I've always been proud of the private sector, how it can respond to any crisis, right? So all that uneasiness in 2020, um, you know, we've just figured out and got and moved forward. And I think um, uh, I like to always say, even though the pandemic occurred, economic development in Erie didn't stop. Um, we mm -hmm. had companies relocate their operations here during the pandemic. We've mm. had companies expand their own company. You know, we had a company that just relocated from New York State into Knowledge Park, a co company called Truck Light. We had a company and they just moved their headquarters to, to Erie, Pennsylvania. 
We had Amazon de develop their first distribution center here. We had um, across the sector, of course, anything in the hospitality uh, uh, and retail was really adversely impacted, but 2021 was actually a record year for the hotels in Erie. Um, mm. If you talk with John Oliver, what they did on it, visit Erie. And so um, I think the growth is more robust than people expect or think. It's just they're not aware of it. A lot of people you know, aren't downtown or Erie Insurance is still working remotely. So that has kind of a perception, but they're growing as well. Um, they're, we're just not seeing the bodies out and about. This is all good news. I'm glad you brought this to light. We're talking with James Grunke from the Erie Regional Chamber and Growth Partnership, president and CEO of that organization. So times are tough, but the chamber and its membership, and let's talk about that for a minute, have reacted positively, even though the COVID-19 event has invaded our space, so to speak. So can you talk about the size of membership? What's the scope? What's the geographical reach of the Erie Regional Chamber for folks who may be listening from out of town? So we we really kind of look at a, our labor shed as our um, service area. And labor shed, that just means where are people coming from. Mm -hmm. And so that would be some part of uh, Ohio, New York, um, and some of the surrounding counties. So we say our labor shed is about, oh, slightly larger th than the county, but we we want to do serve any business in the region that wants to grow or just has issues that they're trying to resolve. Um, we think we're here to be a resource to anybody who's having a challenge or an opportunity. Um, so we have uh, a little less than a thousand members, but you don't mm. have to be a chamber member to be served by us. Um, we have about those um, members, they represent about 80,000 jobs in our community. So, you know, when we say we are the leading voice of business here, we, we really are. Um, we're just as interested in an employer with 3,000 employees as one that has themselves, right? And so our service reach should be to anybody who wants to open, start, or expand a business. Anywhere in the world, you're welcoming a call from anywhere you're happy to hear that I'm from sure. anywhere yeah right, right. Yeah. um and we've done that i've done that actually in in past communities you know that that's one thing that we forget about but uh foreign investment into your community is also a great job growth strategy um and so making eerie apparent that we are welcome to the globe is part of a robust economic development strategy so your elevator speech i'm sure lists a couple of things that would cause someone to be very interested in Northwest Pennsylvania. What's the biggest thing in your mind that's an attractor for our region? Well, I, I, think, <clears throat> I have the luxury of still being fairly, uh, I would still call myself a newcomer. Um, I don't know when that line really ends. Um, but Erie has always been a place that makes stuff, and it's always going to be a place that makes stuff. We're just going to make different stuff. Right. If, whether it be heavy manufacturing or um, being involved in digital gaming um, for the world or technology, that's still making stuff. And so that work ethic and that history is is unique to this part of the world. It, it's it's not like skilled manufacturing or skilled people are just laying around around the country. And so the attraction um, of Erie really is the robust 
history of making things. Erie also is blessed to be a community of its size to have unbelievable educational delivery, right? You have four universities. You have one the nation's largest medical school. We have now two community colleges, both the Erie County Community College and the Northern Pennsylvania Regional College. Mm -hmm. So everything in economic development always goes to one linchpin, workforce development. Can I find the workers that I need? Well, no. find me another community of 300,000 that has those assets, and you won't. Um, and so those are things that we should celebrate. Absolutely, and good points. We also are a, a huge resource for fresh water. How has that affected some of your discussions with folks? Well, that is, that's a great point. Um, we, we, that's an opportunity and a challenge for us. So we have tremendous capacity for water and sewer. What we don't have is we don't have tremendous land and building inventory. And mm -hmm. let me just give you mm -hmm. why this matters. Mm -hmm. one, of the, one of the priorities under both the last two administrations, the current and the last administration, was how do we bring back our chip manufacturing from overseas back to the United States? It's part of just even our national defense strategy. But that's why people can't buy a car right now. It's just access to, to microchips. Mm -hmm. Well, microchip companies take an intense amount of water. We think that might be an opportunity for Erie to say, we might be the right spot for you. We also have, um, we're not really a city of 300,000. Within an hour and a half up here, Buffalo, Cleveland, right, Pittsburgh, right. we have a metro of about 6 million people right. combined with that, with mm -hmm. world-renowned engineering schools, whether it be a Buffalo or Carnegie or Pitt, or you, you pick it, mm -hmm. right? So we actually have much more of leverage than people would think at first blush, but our challenge right now is even if a company said, hey, I want to come to Erie and, and do this, and, and you're right, um, I don't have a, we don't have a space that's large enough for them to go to. So we're going to spend a lot of time this year, next year, working with the Erie County Redevelopment Authority and others to get the necessary land available so we can actually compete. Right on. I've talked a lot with the Development Authority and a lot of folks. We have a lot of acreage. Unfortunately, it would be great if we could take it all, the brownfields, the corrected real estate, so to speak, and sort of glue it together so it it would provide a, a large enough space, say, for an automobile factory, which seems to be cropping up in Tennessee and Alabama and other parts of, of the country. You're exactly right. Or even a supply chain for manufacturing for automotive or more importantly, you know, Wabtec is going to lead the, the globe on battery technology for locomotives. And, yes. you know, we think Erie's well positioned for where that research and development and manufacturing should do. And then think of what all secondary um, opportunities would come as a result of that. So, you know, we watch what they're doing uh, with a close eye and, um, you know, we just saw recently they got some their first orders in Australia for some electric locomotives, and I know that they're putting a, a lot of their future in that technology, and we think they should be doing it here. 
Going back to the steam era, you know, the 1880s, 1890s, Zern founded in, I believe, 1899, and then the 20s, you had Amsco and Lord. We we do have some good seed capital. When you think about it, locomotives were a jumpstart because the rail gauge changed here, and you had to do a lot of work. You're uh, exactly right. Right, and then you had all these steam fitters, and then we were the largest church organ manufacturing center in the world at one time. I Can you see that same kind of growth subsequent? In, uh, in the 21st century here? I think we do. I, I, I think there was a really interesting um, application put together by Penn State, Barron, uh, Gannon University, uh, and a few other private sector as part of the Build Back Better application process. Erie wasn't ultimately selected. It was a national competition. But it was a really interesting, and I think we're still going to pursue advancing this, um, how kind of renewables and alternative energy and water and plastics all kind of merged together. And there was about a $100 million grant application that they had put together that probably would have developed a billion-dollar industry here in our community. And those are really the unique features that Erie has that much smarter minds than mine are, are putting together. But the collaboration that happened with that um, the, is just, we really think water, renewables, alternative energy, those are the f- future of Erie. And so we don't know, know who the next large corporation that's going to emerge here. We just need to expect that one is going to. I had heard some stories about recycling uh, being one area that we may be good at. Absolutely. I think that's why uh, the IRG putting their plant here, their very first uh, sorting plant. Uh, mm-hmm. I think, you know, Erie is really positioned to be the first movers on most of this. You know, unless you're from Erie, you don't know that Erie has one of the highest concentration of plastics manufacturing in the United States. And we have to really say, you know, what are the things that we are better at than everybody else and then promote it? And that'd be one of them. I saw a video where Volkswagen uh, built a plant right in the middle of a metropolitan area, and it was vertical. What I'm getting at is that we have the value of the water. Maybe there's other technology available in the way you build a plant, build automobiles, for example. Yeah, that's right. And I think uh, I think some of the things that the pandemic has brought us is a, is a new way and a new approach of doing business. Um, and as I said kind of earlier, the private sector will always respond. You know, as the market changes, um, new things are figured out. I was I was in an airport recently. I think I was in Chicago, and I was sitting there, and I was just watching everybody walk through the airport with their mask on. And mm-hmm. I thought to myself, you know, two years ago, none of us even owned a mask, um, and we just respond. And I think the market will continue to do that. I think people in Erie inherently, because of our history with metal bending and plastics, we have a lot of energy here. We have a lot of entrepreneurs here. What is your take on that? I agree. Um, there is, but we've been working for the last several years um, in really, we, we took over the accelerator that was part of um, the Erie Innovation District. So in July mm. of 2020, that responsibility came under the, the umbrella of the chamber. And that really is a way for us to jumpstart entrepreneurship in our community. Historically, um, most of the companies participating in, in the accelerator have been from outside of the region, which is 
also a good strategy. You want to get people to come here and, and invest in our community. But the last two years, 2020 and 2021, we had our first Erie-based companies also go through the accelerator. And, and we think that's the right strategy, a mix of outside and inside um, to really be a more robust entrepreneurship community. But some people forget, to your point, Erie actually has a long, long history of being an entrepreneurial community. I think sometimes we have forgotten it. Um, you listed almost every industry that has emerged out of here. Mm -hmm. I, I like to say, you know, two of the, the companies that people are so proud of here in this community, you know, Lord Corporation, it just started with, with a guy who found a patent, right? He didn't even create it, but he started with just an idea and he built a global mm -hmm. company. Uh, Erie Insurance really was just two guys at a street corner, uh, you know, now built mm -hmm. a Fortune 500 company. So the, the, our mentality should be celebrate the past, but who's going to be the next Lord, the next Erie Insurance, the next put in the name. Erie's Magnetics, plastic. And then when you think about it uh, from the medical side, American Sterilizer made fantastic devices that supported the world since the 20s. It's, we are a great resource. You're right particularly on, on the medical, right? The partnership between um, UPMC, McGee Women's Center, uh, Penn State Barron, Gannon University, you know, they have nine trials going on right now um, on breakthrough uh, medical studies for women's health, right? That we're positioned to be leaders in that. And, and again, we all get in our own little rut and we're not seeing the amazing breakthroughs that are happening every day in Erie. Um, and I'm privileged that I get the front seat at that, so it's hard for me to not be excited. For people living a little ways away, we have one resource, and I know you're going to uh, expound on it. We have great universities and colleges here. What's your thoughts on that? We really do. I think we touched on it uh, before, that that's an asset that most every community um, was begging for to have that type of, of a reach. And it's at any level, right? The most advanced PhD level in, in engineering or medical sciences to, we now have a community college is bringing education to people where they are. And that, that means not only physically, but where they are attainment wise. Do they need um, some remediation? Do they, you know, we are so blessed and we need to take advantage of that. James Grunke, um, President, CEO, tell us about your support staff. I know you don't sit there by yourself, <laughs> and I know you work hard and diligently. Tell us about uh, the folks that are, well, maybe they're not in the office with you, but all the folks that are affiliated with the Erie Regional Chamber and Growth Partnership. Well, and thank you for giving me the ability to acknowledge the people uh, and, and your kind thinking that I actually do work hard. Uh, you know, I, I'm blessed is I get to talk about what we do, but we have an unbelievable team who does what we do. You know, we have um, a, a tre tremendous uh, business outreach team led by Jake Rao and our economic development team. We have a, our first ever for the last three years, a, a government affairs and advocacy responsibility that's led by Amy Murdoch. We have uh, now a more robust business engagement team that is um, led by Leslie Ridge Allen. We have a team of about 11 people that their only job is to, to advance Erie, right? We have one simple agenda. How does Erie get a stronger economy? 
and you have a team of 11 people here mm. that their sole focus is advancing Erie's interest. And Erie is fortunate that they have this a team like this. Let's talk about resources that you make available. Over the years, I've seen catalogs, I've seen directories, I've seen a, a, a very robust website. What kind of resources um, do you offer for your members? So we offer almost any resource a person needs. And mm-hmm. that sounds so vague and, and nothing, but it really is true. We don't know. I mean, I've had, I've, I've met with thousands of businesses uh, in my lifetime, in my career, and their first question would be, what can you do to help me? And my answer is, I have no idea, right? Let's talk about it. Because it really is a custom tailored, what is their need? And, and for us, the simple way to think is, if you open our door, let's see how many other doors we open for you. Um, so we're just trying to accelerate success. So it could be, hey, I need a little help on some digital marketing to, I need to find um, highly trained workforce to, I don't have access to capital that I need to grow. Or, I mean, the list is all, anything you can imagine, we're interested in hearing about. I think that's fascinating because my experience, if I could add this to the discussion, is there are a lot of uh, grassroots entrepreneurs, which goes back to what you mentioned about folks that started, uh, say, Zern or Amsco or the garage mechanic who's created a multi-multi-million dollar industry 50, 80, 100 years subsequent. Uh, you're a resource for entrepreneurs in a lot of ways, I hope? Absolutely. I mean, in fact, those are the ones who are, they're out lonely working in their garage or their basement. They don't even know um, there are other people like them or how to even turn to for some advice or some mentoring or um, how would you do this? That's what we're here for. We're here for, in, if you're at your kitchen table with an idea on the back of your napkin or your ear insurance, we still want to serve both of you. We're almost out of time. So this is the point that I ask, uh, how do folks... Get in touch with you. What's the best way? You know, we're always available. As I said, there's a team of 11. Um, we have some out people that their only job is to do business outreach. So they're out knocking on doors, not saying, mm. hey, become a member. It's like, hey, can we be part of your solution? I'm always available. You can go right to our website. You can call us. You can email me. Um, you can email any of the team. Uh, there is no question that's too trivial. There's no need that's too small. Um and there's no idea that we're not interested in hearing. And uh, last question, how do you uh, me- meld or collate with the other economic development organizations in the community? So we have some tremendous economic development organizations. They meet uh, every other week. It's called the lead team, and it's all the economic development groups that are, hey, I'm hearing this project or I'm doing this. Um, we try to kind of position ourselves as we want to be the front door and then we'll connect you with the right resource to get you where you need to be. I think but people, we, oh, we sorry. could not do it without everybody else. We, I, we, yeah. we have no chance of success without their success. I think sometimes people don't realize you there. So we corrected that problem, hopefully for someone. And the second thing is it takes a lot of energy to collate this information and gain a list of contacts to help embellish your business. So I think we're all grateful you're here. James Grunke, the uh, President CEO of the Erie Regional Chamber and Growth Partnership, I want to thank you for your valuable time here. We'll catch up with you in a few months and um, measure how things are going as we get across 2022 into 2023. And thank you for this interview today. 
Thank you. I always appreciate the conversation.